please join me in welcoming to the Distinctive Voices podium, Eric Katz and Rachel Sitars. Hi guys. Thank you for coming. We're really excited to be here. Happy to leave the 30 degree weather to come to the beautiful state of California. So she did a great introduction. Um, I guess I don't really need to talk about what we're here for. You guys all, all know, but we're going to go ahead and get started and talk about cyber forensics and everything that we do at Purdue. All right. So one of the first questions people have is, what is cyber forensics? And besides it being the buzzword that got everybody in attendance to come in today, Cyber forensics is essentially looking at scientific methods to reconstruct events that happened. And in this case, it particularly involves evidence on computers and other digital devices. What you see on screen is the technical definition from the Digital Forensics Research Workshop. Um, but I'm not going to read that to you. I'll let you understand that on your own pace. Yeah. Cyber forensics encompasses uh, many different sectors. It involves just about every activity on the world now. This includes militaries, governments, intelligence organizations. It also includes law enforcement and private sector business and industry. And this involves the standards and guidelines. It involves how you do your investigations, the rules of evidence that apply. How do you present this in court? How do you explain it to people who don't necessarily understand the technical matters that make it important? Um, there's a lot of information that gets recorded. And sometimes the hardest part is explaining what it means. So to understand what cyber forensics does and what we're attempting to accomplish, one of the first things you need to know is, what is a computer crime? What is cyber crime? And according to the American Academy of Forensic Science, there are three definitions for cyber crime. Uh, there's a computer-assisted crime. And these are crimes that involve computers, but they've existed for a long period of time. The computer's not necessary for them to be committed. Uh, these include crimes such as fraud, uh, child pornography as it's listed, uh, scams, these have been going on for years and generations, uh, for as long as one person has decided to take advantage of another person. Uh, the computer has just made it easier. It's facilitated some of the, the actions. And then there are computer-specific crimes. These are crimes that only exist because we have computers and network technology. These include denial of service attacks, uh, breaking into passwords, hacking, uh, and various other things. And the final one is computer incidental. And some people question this, but there are a lot of evidence, evidence of crimes or evidence of activities that occur on computers that have nothing to do with the activity in the, that occurred in the physical world. Uh, this includes things like spreadsheets, Word documents, where people will write down or record things. One of my favorite things to find is evidence in drug cases where the drug dealer has a better Excel sheet than my accountant. Uh, that in itself is not a crime, but it does prove that one occurred. Uh, and so that type of evidence is included in computer crimes and digital forensic investigations. All right. So I'm going to go ahead and talk about why cyber forensics. Why do we need this field? Why do we need Eric and myself other than we're awesome and that's why you need us? But as you can see, some statistics up here. There are 1.83 billion internet users worldwide. And that's a lot of people. And there's no way that all 1.83 billion people are on the computer using it just for good purposes. There's going to be criminals, too. There's one trillion pages of content on the internet. That's a lot. I don't know how many zeros that is, but that's a lot. So you can see there's, just, there's a lot of data. So basically, there's a lot of potential evidence out there for people like Eric and myself to find and put somebody in jail or to prove that somebody is innocent. To give you another idea of how much data there is out there on the internet, they say that there's 25 petabytes of data created daily on the internet. So you might be asking, how much is a petabyte? Who's ever heard of a petabyte? I mean, that's a weird word, right? So just to give a little breakdown of it, there's 1,024 gigabytes in a terabyte, and there's 1,024 terabytes in one petabyte. So multiply that by 25, that's a big number. Again, I don't know how many numbers there are in that one, but basically, it's a whole lot of data. <laughs> also, some interesting statistics, and when we were doing some research, I stumbled across this, so I wanted to share it with you guys because I found it interesting, so of course, you guys are going to find it interesting, too. We all know that there's a lot of books in the Library of Congress, right? 
20 million, something like that. Just Facebook, images that are on Facebook alone, is 10,000 times that of the, the data in the Library of Congress. That's a lot, just pictures on Facebook. So you can see a little breakdown here. Facebook is the big box. After that is Flickr. Has anyone ever used Flickr? It's another picture one if you guys don't know what that is. The smaller box is Instagram. Has anyone ever heard of Instagram? A couple of you guys? All right, well, Instagram's only been around since 2010. It's another picture uh, application. But all of those, those different medias have more data than the Library of Congress. So that, that's why we need us. That's why we need this field. Now, onto the criminal aspect of it. They say that there are new online threats every 3.5 seconds. Of course, these statistics, we don't know if they're real. I mean, it could be 3.5 seconds or it could be every second. We don't know because the, the information just simply isn't out there. The research needs to be done on this kind of stuff to know how much crime really is occurring. But regardless, we do know that millions of dollars are lost every single year from online crimes, things that are occurring on the internet. And these online crimes can range from vandalizing websites, bullying, international terrorists. There's a whole plethora of different criminal activity. Basically, any crime that occurred offline now has some sort of technology or online component. This is the Susan G. Coleman website. I think, I believe this happened last year, but somebody had hacked into the website and changed the banner at the bottom from help us get 26.2 miles closer to a world without breast cancer to help us run over poor women on the way to the bank. So that would be a prime example of, of website vandal vandalization. And there's a lot of different risks. We all know, we've kind of already touched on all that, but basically cyber attacks now, they outweigh terrorism, traditional crime, and even national disasters. So it's a huge deal, and there's a huge need for this field. As well, we all know, who has a cell phone in here? <laughs> who doesn't have a cell phone in here? All right, a few of you. Three people. Well, devices, everyone has technology now, basically, almost everyone. <laughs> devices are becoming larger. I know I have a one terabyte external hard drive in my purse. I know who carries an external hard drive? A dork, me. <laughs> but I, I mean, it cost me less than $100. Five years ago, that would have cost more than $500. And so all this media is becoming easier for us to all obtain, which is awesome. But at the same time, criminals are getting all this media too, and they're using it with their crimes. So you know, it's, it's evolving, and just as technology is evolving, criminal tradecraft, the usages of technology in their criminal tradecraft is also evolving. There are a lot of websites online that tell people how to commit their crimes. There are, webs there are, are videos, there are step-by-step -step instructions on websites, there are blogs where people talk, and they, they learn how to be successful at being a criminal, doing different kinds of criminal activity. So, I mean, these bad guys are out there, they are among us, they're not, you know, the stereotypical criminal lurking in the dark, they are out there and they're among us. So, uh, a little about Purdue's Cyber Forensics program. As was mentioned, we are a national academic leader in computer forensics. Uh, we do uh, apply education for future students and training for uh, current analysts and investigators. Um, our research is both applied and basic, which means we attack uh, research programs that are for real-world cases right away. We have immediate results that we need. And some of our research is designed to apply to the general body of knowledge of cyber forensics. Both areas are extremely important, especially in this field, as we are relatively new and a very growing field. Uh, we also apply investigative support for various digital forensic uh, companies, uh, private organizations, law enforcement agencies across the world. Our goal is to apply and find technological solutions and research for current and future challenges and trends in the field of cyber forensics. Uh, in our work and part of our research, we have helped develop national and global policies. We've assisted with the writing and crafting of the Indiana and Kentucky digital signature laws, and we've helped inform and uh, draft some of the national cyberbullying laws. Uh, work that we do has been uh, used and our research is uh, where they get their information for writing future child protection acts and a lot of that work has been done with the Interpol organization. Uh, as I mentioned we service a lot of different communities. Uh, 
we do all four uh, that we recognize, academia, government and intelligence, law enforcement, and private sector. And this can include anything from training uh, where we teach their investigators how to come in and use some of the newest techniques and standards in the field of digital forensics, or we can help, uh, help discuss cases, work on them with their investigations. Uh, sometimes we provide uh, expert witness testimony and brief people on the different situations. A little about our organization itself. We're the, pro the program is fairly new. We've only been around for about 10 years. We have 20 master's students and 12 PhD students. And as a surprising uh, amount of them are female students. Uh, this is traditionally a, a male-dominated <laughs> field. It's technology after all. Uh, but 36% of our department is female. And of those, 60% of our PhD students are female, uh, which is a nice trend. We also have a growing number of foreign students. Uh, it's 14% and rising. Most of our students at some point in time have gotten some sort of national or local uh, award. These include fellowships from Lockheed Martin, MITRE, uh, the Department of Homeland Security, and a few of the Bisland dissertation fellowships. Uh, Dr. Marcus Rogers is our program lead. He developed the program, like I said, about 10 years ago. Uh, he specializes in psychological and digital crime scene analysis and applied cyber forensic solutions. Our newest professor is Dr. Samuel Lyles. Uh, he, uh, before coming to Purdue, he was a member of the National Defense University, and there he taught uh, several courses in cybercrime and uh, multinational conflict. And he continues that tradition here at Purdue, where he teaches uh, cyber conflict, forensic attribution, and system analysis. A little about myself, as I've been talking this entire time. Uh, I got my bachelor's from Indiana University in the field of informatics, and then moved to Purdue, where I studied cyber forensics and received my master's, and I've decided to stay and pursue my PhD there as well. Some of the research I've done includes uh, shadow volume forensics, uh, field testing of mobile phone shielding devices, and geovisual timelines, uh, as was mentioned earlier. Uh, my area of specialty is mostly in mobile forensics and hard drive forensics. So a little, about, little bit about shadow volumes. Um, my research in this field started with a police investigation. They had a computer case come in where the suspect had had prior knowledge that the police were coming and cleaned his computer up. There was no evidence that they could find. Uh, in fact, the only thing they had were two pointers that said that a file of interest might be existing in this thing called a shadow volume, and they didn't know what that was. Um, and essentially what a shadow volume is, is a file backup that Microsoft creates. It was introduced in Windows Server 2003, but the home user didn't really see it until Windows Vista. And sure enough, this was a Windows Vista laptop. Uh, and these periodically run, and they back up all the files on your computer uh, in case you need to restore them. Of course, Microsoft's home versions, so anything other than the Ultimate and the Enterprise editions, couldn't access these files. They were cut off. The files were generated, created, and you could do nothing with them. <laughs> they merely existed. Uh, when we contacted Microsoft and asked, hey, we, there's some evidence in here. We'd really like to see what's in there. They said, uh, there's nothing you can do. Uh, sorry about that. So I spent the next six months with another student of, uh, from our university trying to figure out how do you extract this file? How do you pull it off the computer? How do you expand it? How do you look at it? Sure enough, after six months, we were able to extract the file, put it into a virtual machine and, and blow it up, and allowed the detective to see the suspect's computer six months before they arrested him. Uh, we presented uh, the paper we published on how to do this to the American Academy of Forensic Science, and we did close the case. Thank you. Uh, so, uh, my next area of research was in mobile phone shielding devices. This also started from dealing with law enforcement. Uh, as part of my duties at the university, I'm the law enforcement training coordinator, which is really just a catch-all saying anytime that we have law enforcement or private industry or anyone who's concerned has a question about digital forensics, I'm the contact person and the first go-to to try and figure out what's happening and who do they need to talk to. Well, in our law enforcement training, we had several officers make jokes that the cell phone shields that they 
that are supposed to pre preserve evidence on these phones weren't working and that they could call the cell phones through the shields. I thought that was a little funny and didn't know if that was uh, improper use or a bad shielding device or what was happening, so we decided we needed to investigate this. And the basic concept is mobile phones are everywhere. Uh, Rachel already proved there are only two or three people in this audience that don't have a cell phone. Everybody else has at least one, if not two or three. Uh, and nobody really thinks about carrying them. Uh, very rarely is a person with a, beyond 10 feet of their phone. Uh, they're always on us. They're always recording information. Uh, even when you think they're off, they're probably on and recording things about you. And that's great for an investigation from a digital forensic standpoint. That means we have a lot of things to reconstruct uh, the events that are occurring. Unfortunately, this information is really volatile. It changes very quickly. Uh, and it's easily deleted. Things like text bombs uh, have, were very common. And that's when you send one text message after another text message after another. And the goal that you wipe out the bad conversation before the police can look at it. Uh, remote wipes. These were originally a security feature introduced by BlackBerry. If you're a corporate CEO and you lose your phone because you put it down somewhere, the last thing you want to do is have all your corporate secrets and email get out because somebody else picked it up. So you can send a signal, a real quick signal, and it zeroes out all the information on the phone. So there's nothing left. It's a factory reset. Uh, great from a security standpoint, really bad from an investigative standpoint. Uh, it makes it really hard to recover and image these phones. And that's not the only thing that makes it hard to recover in image phones. Currently, there's no standard method of analysis for going after phones. There's just too many. There's a large number of phones out there on the market. They change every week. There's new phones introduced every couple of weeks. Um, even if you have two of the same phone, it doesn't mean they have the same operating system on them. If they come from two different providers, it doesn't mean they're going to respond to the same software and the same techniques the same way. Uh, nothing's more frustrating than getting two iPhones, and not getting the same results. And this calls, so you have to preserve your evidence. You have to protect it until someone who knows what they're doing can get a hold of the phone and can extract the evidence. And this calls into your question, question the ability to uh, be admissible in court. Uh, once evidence has changed, you can't go back. And you need to be able to prove that when you took the phone, the information you're getting off of it now is the same information you got then or that was on it then. If it changes while it's in your custody, you have to know why it's changing and what's happening. If you can't prove that, not only can you not prove uh, guilt, you also can't prove innocence, which is extremely important. Uh, in fact, it's important enough that major organizations across the globe have published guidelines saying cell phones need to be preserved. They need to be, have methods, need to be developed to uh, cut, off, cut them off from their providers. Uh, these organizations include Interpol, they include the National Institute of Standards and Technology, the Scientific Working Group for Digital Evidence, and the International Association of Chiefs of Police. Uh, and the most recommended way they do this is by using shielding devices, Faraday-esque devices as I call them. And the idea is they perform similar to a Faraday cage. They try to prevent all signals from the outside from being able to reach anything on the inside, any signals from the inside being able to reach outside. Uh, if they succeed, you've successfully cut off all communication to the phone. And what's great about this is an officer or an investigator, a first responder, doesn't have to have a lot of training on how to use cell phones in order to use the shielding device. Uh, these are some examples of some of the shielding devices I worked with in my research. Uh, most of them are bags or some sort of mesh, usually conducted of uh, metal, uh, most commonly nickel, silver, um, copper. Um, and the vendors are happily sell these forensic tools to police officers. And they'll say things like they're 99.99% effective at blocking the phone. Or they'll put equations on their website that make it sound like the shields are really good. In fact, due to my research, the website's changed. You won't see this advertisement anymore. Uh, when I questioned the company about it, they quickly changed their advertisement. Um, the 99.99% effectiveness, I decided I wasn't going to try and contest them. I assume they are 99.99% effective. But what they're telling you is they're 99.9% .9 effective at blocking 80 decibels at this range, not that they're 99% effective at blocking all cell phone signal. Uh, these devices fail for three different reasons. 
Uh, the most common being there's not enough attenuation. They don't block the signal well enough. There's some sort of leakage, either because the bag or the shield isn't complete, there's a leak, or because the detective decided they needed to plug the cell phone in to keep it powered and left the, you know, an antenna reaching out to the cord to the power connection. Uh, and the final reason is the shield itself can become an antenna. Most people don't realize your cell phones have four or more antennas in them, and some of them are contact antennas. So when you put a giant metal bag around a contact antenna, you've just made a bigger contact antenna, an improved reception for the cell phone. Uh, unfortunately, these devices have unknown rates of failure. Uh, so when you seize them, put them in your preservation bag, and then uh, say they're protected and preserved, and wait six months for them to get to the, invest to the uh, forensic analyst and have him do the investigation, uh, you don't know what's happened to your data during that time. Uh, that evidence can be quickly overwritten, can be erased, uh, and that calls into your entire into question your entire chain of custody and whether this evidence will be later admissible into court. Uh, and being a part of forensic science, that's a huge responsibility. We have to be able to admit our evidence into court. So in my testing, I took six different shielding devices and 14 phones from 13, uh, three of the major carriers. I used AT&T, Sprint, and Verizon. Uh, budgetary constraints prevented T-Mobile from entering into the equation. Um, and then I went out to cornfields in the middle of Indiana. Not knowing if these shields could fail or not, I wanted to get away from any sources of alternative communication. I wanted to be next to the most powerful towers I could find. Uh, so these are towers near highways designed to cover miles and miles of, of area. And I sat there in the Indiana winter and made 5,100 phone calls. <laughs> thinking, great. I'll hopefully have one or two failures so there will be some data. Um, much to my surprise, there was an overall failure rate between all the, shield, the shields and all the phones and all the carriers of about 53%. So 53% of the time, data changed when the phone was supposed to be shielded. Uh, the most common one was SMS, which are text messages. They're brief, they don't need a lot of communication. And so 56% of the time, almost 60%, they managed to penetrate the shield and the phone would receive a text message despite the fact that it was supposed to be protected. Uh, voice calls were close behind at 53%. And multimedia messages, the MMS, was the only one that was under 50%, and that was 48% of the time it managed to get through. Uh, there are also other forms of communication that cell phones use, such as 3G, 4G, uh, and uh, near contact fields. I didn't test those, so I just went for the major ones that I thought about at the time. Uh, and this evidence was quite shocking. These are sold as forensic devices. Um, they managed to not pass a pass-fail test. My current research, however, is still dealing with cell phones. Uh, now I've moved on to geovisual timelines. It's great to see timelines. Um, it's great to see all the information on a phone. They like to record, as I said, everything even when they shouldn't. Anybody who's ever downloaded an app from an app store, especially uh, the Google Play Store, you can always look for all the permissions. Uh, you should probably click on those sometime. You'd be surprised at what those applications are asking permission to do. Uh, why does a memo program need full two-way network access and debugging modes on my phone? It's supposed to take a short note, right? Uh, but most of them ask for two-way communication. They want the the app writer wants to know everything that you're writing about on your program. Uh, and your phone's recording data even when you think it's off. It's just in a low power mode. So it can still record GPS positions. It still talks to the towers and does its handoffs. Uh, and it records great information, such as timestamps, your GPS position, addresses. Uh, they save map tiles from when you search or when you try to figure out where you're trying to go. It stores all the cell towers you talk to, your Wi-Fi access points, the data that transmits back and forth. And it does these in various files. Sometimes they're kind enough to give me a, uh, a Wi-Fi.cache file. Sometimes they're hidden response files. Sometimes they're just fragments stored in a database that have to be reconstructed. Uh, but the great news is, once you've done that, you can map out who's doing what where. I can now tell you what website you went to when you were standing on which street corner. 
what application you were running. It may not matter that you were playing Angry Birds. In fact, usually that's a piece of information that's looked over by most investigators. However, it may matter that you're playing Angry Birds when you're at a specific house and five other people are in that house at the same time because those could be your conspirators. Uh, this involves clustering information when you start to see groups of people and groups of activities occur in the same locations. Uh, we can also map out your social networks. Not only can we see who everybody you know on Facebook and everybody who you're tweeting and following, we can see who you're actually communicating with, who's your actual social network, not just the people you know. Uh, this lets us know more about your identity. Who are you? What do these actions mean to that person or to your investigation? Uh, and this provides operational intelligence for uh, both law enforcement and intelligence organizations. Uh, it allows for incident response if you're a company trying to figure out how did your data systems get breached, what happened to your network, where did it go. Your phones are powerful storage devices. Uh, insider trading and insider espionage often happens, and a cell phone's a common way to export this. So knowing the behavioral patterns uh, and the identities of your, your suspects uh, is of extreme importance. Uh, unfortunately, when you pull it off of a phone or you start looking through it, it's, as I said, chunks of file information, databases, pieces of things here and there. It's very hard to interpret. You need to see it on a map. And this is a test phone I did. I did work with as proof of concept over the summer. Uh, yes, I can tell you it's a little messy, but you can see everything that every activity the user is doing. Each one of those pens represents a different activity, a different timestamp of occurrence. Uh, and you can also start to see how things cluster. So there's some items that are farther away, some items that are, have multiple actions associated with them. As you zoom in, you can start to see where in what building I was performing my actions. It's not just, oh, you get a general rough estimate. It's he was standing directly in this building sitting at this desk when this action occurred. And it records, as I said, a lot. This is the information that it's based off of. If you clicked one of those icons, one of the push pins, this is what brings up. It's a lot easier to see it on the map as a push pin than it is to read the timestamp, latitude and longitude in a database and then try to make sense of it. It's also a lot easier to, to explain to somebody else, oh, this is why we know it. And this is good for proving multiple things. Not only, like I said, who did what where. This can establish and break alibis. If you say you weren't at this location at the time a crime occurred, you run this program. If there's no push pins at that time, the state he was in that position, then you're innocent, or most likely innocent. I won't make guarantees like that. Uh, but if there is pushpins there, then we need to investigate why. Uh, who's telling the truth? What's happening? So uh, that's the goal of my research right now. All right. All right, in case you guys forgot, I'm Rachel been quiet for a little bit, so just want to remind you. Uh, just to give you a brief background about myself, I got my bachelor's from Purdue in law and society, and I minored in forensics and psychology. I got my master's in the cyber forensics program also at Purdue, and I'm still at Purdue getting my PhD. So I've been, I love Purdue, obviously. I've been there nine years. Um, they can't get rid of me. They've tried. No. <laughs> I'm joking. Uh, <laughs> I also, I have the Vaccine Department of Homeland Security Doctoral Fellowship right now. If you guys don't know what Vaccine is, it's the Visual Analytics for Command Control and Interoperability Environments. It's a mouthful, so Vaccine is what got on the screen. But um, I got that, and basically I get to do lots of cool research and, and stay in school. I also am, I'm a criminal intelligence analyst with the Indiana State Police. I'm on the Internet Crimes Against Children Task Force. So yes, I work full-time, and I'm a full-time student, which means I don't have a life. So, <laughs> but I wouldn't change it. I would not change it. My area of research, I do a lot of different kinds of research, but I tend to focus on internet predators, and that's mainly because it's what I do with work, too. It kind of goes hand-in-hand, hand, coincides. I did internet addiction and child pornography usage for my master thesis, 
I've done a predatory behavior in online chat rooms analysis project, and then also looking at female offenders, because everyone thinks about sexual predators as being men, so I wanted to know, are there any women who do this? So I'll go over my, my projects. So I'm going to start by talking about child pornography and give you guys a brief background so you guys really understand how huge of a problem that it really is, and you guys can understand why it is that I decided to research this very dark and disgusting area. So um, child pornography is widespread through the internet. It's everywhere. There's no city, town, country that is immune to child pornography. It is everywhere on the internet. And it's, it's borderless. So somebody sitting in California could be looking at child pornography that's in a different country, in Russia somewhere. It's borderless. Uh, technology, technological advances has made it a lot easier for these predators to engage in their activity. And they, it's quick, most of the time it's free, sometimes they pay for it, and when they do, it's very inexpensive. In the past, long time ago, before I was born probably, they'd have to send it through the mail and, you know, most likely get caught. There's, there was a lot more risks. Now there's a lot less risk, and there's a sense of anonymity. When you're on the internet, you don't feel like you're, you're not looking somebody in the eye, you're not looking somebody in the face, you don't feel like you're... You have a presence there. You have this sense of anonymity, and the same goes for these sexual predators. Like I said, there's a sense of less legal risks and a, lot, a sense of less social risks. They don't have to worry about somebody's wife intercepting the mail and seeing that they're buying this material through the internet or through the, through the mail. With the internet, they can download that on their computers and stay hidden. And it's growing more than ever before. It's a multi-billion dollar industry, believe it or not. People, every year, people are paying multi-billions of dollars for this material. That's crazy. They, there's 100,000 child pornography websites at any given time online. Just websites where people are going online and paying. And as soon as law enforcement shuts one down, five more pop right up. And all these predators, they talk to one another, and they know where those websites are going, where they're, where they're relocating to. So it's a big problem. It's really hard for, for us, for the police department, to keep up with it. These guys, they develop large collections. A lot of times when they get arrested, we find that they have 80,000, 90,000, 100,000 child pornography images and videos saved onto their computer. A lot of times they have big collections of series. So just like a series of TV shows, they have series of child pornography with the child engaging in different acts. So a lot of times they're looking for these series and they want to fill a whole collection. They tend to have a narrative and thematic link, so they might have interest in the specific age group and the specific gender. But they're going to have every, every kind of child pornography available. They're going to have every age group, they're going to have every gender, but the majority of their collection is going to focus on that one group that they're most interested in. So my example is maybe they have brown-haired hair, brown -haired girl three, 13 years old. Blonde-haired boy, 12 years old. They, they categorize them very specifically, very methodically. They have a link, but maybe it's blonde-haired girls, 12 years old. That's their, that's their age group that they're specifically looking at, that they want. So most of their collection is going to surround that specific interest. But they're going to have everything else, too. And that's how they collect these huge, huge collections. We've even seen cases in the past where people have had full servers dedicated to their child pornography trading and collection hobby, I guess. So here's a pretty shocking picture. Usually people are pretty stunned by this. This is uh, over a six-hour period. How many people were trading child pornography on a peer-to-peer -peer network? Each red dot represents a different individual. So you can see that it's quite a few people. And when I took this screenshot, I want to say that I believe it was 9 or 10 in the morning, Indiana time, Eastern time zone. So you guys can check out California. There's a little bit of a time difference there. Yeah, that's pretty early in the morning that these people are doing that. So now on to my thesis. I just kind of wanted to give you guys an overview of child pornography on the Internet. So I made an online survey. I put it on various websites, and I asked people to take my survey and to tell me if they've ever looked at child pornography before. It was completely voluntary. I didn't ask anybody what their names were, what any kind of identifiers. Just take my survey. Shockingly, 20% of the people who took my survey admitted to viewing child pornography at some point. 20%. I mean, I, thought, I think that's a huge number. 
Out of that 20%, 100% were men. I don't know if that's shocking or not, but <laughs> um, they all, I found that they were significantly more likely to be addicted to the internet than non-child pornography users. They also displayed salient behaviors, such as giving up social life for being online, preoccupation with the internet, and hiding internet usage and activities from those in their social contact. Here's a breakdown of the demographics. The reason I'm showing this, if you look at the age, majority of the, the child pornography users, and I, I should interject here, the first column are the child pornography users, the second column is the non-child pornography users, and the final one is the total. But as you can see, 53% are 18 to 24. 25 to 34 age group, there's 23% of people. Really not that much different than the non-child pornographers, but I want to say most people think of sexual predators being the dirty old man living in you know, their parents' basement and never coming upstairs. Well, we can see from this, that's not true. <laughs> that's not who these guys are. We can also see marital status. I guess not too shocking, 73% are single or never married, but if we look at 70, about 73% are under the age of 34, and I mean, you know, people, maybe people are waiting until they get older, that's not that shocking. But I mean, a lot of them, 7.7% were married, one was divorced, four were widowed, so you can just kind of see the breakdown. This is education. Again, the education really didn't differ too much from the non-child pornographers. And there's even one that has a PhD. So if that doesn't show that these guys aren't the dirty old man that the media has, has made them out to be, I don't know what will. 15.4% um, of the ch child pornographers make over $100,000 a year. So again, these are working professionals. They're students. They're... You know, they're a wide variety. I can't stress, they're not that group that the media has made them out to be. So we can see a breakdown of their activity on the internet. Child pornography users, a lot of time they spent browsing, more so than the non-child pornographers. They spent a lot of time in chat rooms. They spent less time emailing than the non-child pornographers, which I was kind of shocked about. They spent more time on instant messaging and a lot more time downloading, which if, if it's anything indicator from that map that we saw, that's not too shocking that they're spending a lot of time downloading. So what? Why is this important? Why was this research important? Well, 20% voluntarily admitted to, to uh, viewing child pornography. A lot of people opened my survey up and then just exited out of it. I was able to track if people just looked at it and left. So I'm sure that as soon as people started seeing those questions, they're like, uh-uh, I'm not admitting to this. Even though I don't ask, didn't ask any identifiers, as soon as they saw that, they were not taking this, I'm not admitting to that. So I'm sure that the percentage is even higher. Of course, it's reported. They were all reported as men. It could be, there could have been a woman who was, you know, just changed her gender. There's no way for me to know. But regardless, it kind of tells us who these people are. It's important for predictive modeling. I'm not going to say profiling. My professor told me to stay away from that word. So predictive modeling, I guess, is the academic term for it. So, and again, like I've said a couple of times already, they're not the stereotypical person that media has made them out to be. So this is, it's important for especially law enforcement to keep that in mind, that it's not Bob Joe who's living in the basement. It's, you know, it could be the PhD working professional. My next uh, study that I did was analyzing predatory behaviors in online chat rooms. I did an ethnographic review, so no statistics. I like that. Basically, I went into chat rooms and I just lurked for 45 days, four hours every single day for 45 days straight. If you don't know what lurking is, basically, I just watched what people were saying. I did not communicate with anybody. I did not talk to anyone. I would get messages periodically. I would just exit out of them. Did not communicate with anybody. I just watched what was being said. I started in the Yahoo chat rooms because law enforcement is commonly known that there's a lot of predators in Yahoo chat rooms. So I went there. I noticed that people were saying, go to this chat room, go to that chat room. So I followed. I'm lurking, right? So I followed them and I went to other chat rooms. As they were talking, I recorded their statements verbatim. I just copied and pasted them, kept a running log 
and of which chat rooms they are. This is a breakdown of some of the, the conversations that were taking place. Again, and these, these happen every single day. There are predatory statements being made every single day. Sometimes there are more, sometimes there are less, but there are predatory statements every single day. If you look at this, I mean, there are some pretty vulgar statements, and these are probably the um, less vulgar of the, the bunch. I had, did not put on the screen some of the really bad ones, because they are offensive, even to me, who has to look at this stuff every single day. But they're talking about child pornography. They're talking about their sexual interest, what age group, what demographic that they're interested in. They're asking people to email them. They're talking about their sexual contact with children. The, in the middle, you see the dot, dot, dot. Somebody actually put up a child pornography website and talks about this website and how great it is and that people should go visit it. There are people who are on there talking about wanting to, to share and trade their kids, to trade naked pictures of their children and looking for other parents who want to trade with them. And like the bottom, wife and I love sex with kids. I mean, they're talking about these activities that they're doing. It's, it's horrible. So out of the results, trading child pornography was done every day. Like I said, every single day I saw, I saw trading child pornography. I saw predatory statements. I saw things that people were admitting to doing these activities. People would post links. I, and of course, I never clicked on any of the links. I did not want that on my computer. But I was able to tell, based on my knowledge through the Indiana State Police and the Crimes Against Children Task Force, that some of these links were child pornography. It could be www.sex.com slash child porn. That wasn't the link. Don't go to that. But, <laughs> but it was something similar where I was able to say, that is child pornography. That is going to be child pornography. They were posting those links. They were saying to email them to trade child pornography. They were providing access to websites. They would say, go onto this website. Here is my password, my username. Log in and download all the child pornography you want. They were looking for specific series. They would say the names of the series. Say, I'm looking to complete this series. They would talk about wanting new material. They would talk about wanting to find kids to make new material. Every single day, I saw this, this trend. They were commonly asking for kids to molest. They were saying that they were looking for parents who wanted to share, who wanted to trade, like I showed you in that last example. They were providing cell phone numbers, emails, screen names, their addresses, their actual names. Of course, I don't know, I can't verify, I don't know if they're telling the truth, but the fact that they're putting that out there for the world is, was shocking to me. And it was, very, it was very vulgar. Everything that they were saying was very, very vulgar. If nothing else, children who go into these chat rooms are getting exposed to this kind of stuff. So it, it was a very, very shocking study. My final study I did was looking at the female offenders. So I made another online survey. I sent it out to the Crimes Against Children affiliates in Indiana and a few other states. I asked them about their child exploitation cases, what types of cases. Was it a child molest? Was it child pornography? Was it uh, ex exploitation? What kind of cases? If they've ever seen a woman, and if there was a woman, was there some sort of male involvement? Here is a breakdown of the cases. There were 7,564 cases reported by the ICAC affiliates. Out of that, there are 354 in which the officers have seen a female involved in these cases. Most of the time, when the, the officers reported a female case, it was child neglect, child, um, child abuse, not necessarily a child sex crime, but a, crimes against a child. Um, there were 12 cases in which a woman had child pornography, four cases in which the women were trading child pornography. Uh, they were trading it via peer-to-peer -peer networks and through email. The female to male um, <laughs> equation was 0.05%. So women do do this, but not very often. Out of those, those 12 cases where the, it was a sex crime, in 92% of the cases, the man and the women were romantically involved. Oh, there we go. <laughs> so what, what does this matter? Why is this important? Again, this helps us with predictive modeling. This helps us to know what's going on on there, what's, what's really going on in the world of child exploitation. We know men are more likely 
to engage in this activity. We see it on, in the news. We see it on the media all the time. This morning I was watching the news here in Los Angeles, and I saw a case on the news here. So, I mean, it happens all the time, and most of the time it is men. But we do know that women do do this too. And, you know, if there is a man who's getting caught, law enforcement needs to keep in mind that he, that man could be influencing the woman to be doing that as well. So it is important to look at the woman's computer, to look into the woman, make sure she's not actually involved, she really had no idea about it. Or if they get a woman's case where the woman is the target, make sure to look to see if there's a man that she is, see if there's a man that she's romantically involved, make sure that she, her alibi checks out, that she is telling you all the, the truth. It's very indicative of behavior. So a little bit about our investigations. Um, as I spoke earlier, I am the law enforcement coordinator for our department. Uh, we do con conduct uh, investigations and assist agencies and organizations all over the, st uh, the country. Uh, this includes conducting forensic analysis for your case, uh, analyzing phones, uh, retrieving and finding data that's been deleted or unallocated. Uh, we, prov we provide consulting. We will look over and examine cases as they come across. When people don't know the answer or don't understand what the data means, we turn it into useful, usable information, let them understand what's occurring, what happened. Uh, this means we've often validated or invalidated court findings. Uh, we've written several, several amicus briefs uh, dictating that this was good science or bad science. You need to, to watch out for this. What, what are the defaults and the gotchas? What, what's actually being seen here? Um, we provide expert witness testimony, and as I mentioned, we provide a lot of training. Uh, this includes state agencies, such as the Indiana State Police. This also includes the FBI, uh, Immigration's Customs Enforcement. Um, we've worked with the RCMP, Interpol, and other agencies across the planet. A uh, brief funny story. I was at uh, training for the National White Collar Crime Center NWC3, as you see there. And it was about cell phones. And the instructors start off by talking about how everything he's learned, it's been the Purdue Cyber Forensics Program. And if anyone's ever heard of it before or hasn't heard of it, they need to check it out. And I'm sitting in the back, and I'm kind of smiling and giggling a little bit. And he looks at me, and he's like, have you ever heard about it? Yeah, I'm a PhD student in that program. And he's like, oh, well, maybe we should switch spots. But it, it was pretty cool to see how, how recognized and how known we are. So with investigations, uh, in 2006, our major professor, Dr. Mark Rogers, alongside a few others, wrote an on-scene triage paper. Basically, this paper was to say how you can do investigations in a scientifically sound manner and look at the, do a preview of, of the, the machines while on-scene. So while an investigator goes and kicks in the door, there can be somebody who's one of us sitting in a van and can look at the computers scientifically in a scientifically sound manner and be able to determine whether or not the person is who they say they are. It's important because a lot of times people don't put passwords on their wireless servers, right? A lot, we, I mean, hopefully you guys all do, but a lot of times people don't. And so we could be kicking in the door because we've been watching somebody who we think is trading child pornography, but then their machine has nothing on it. Really, it's their neighbor next door who's using their wireless to download everything. So if we wait until we go back to the lab to look at the computer and say, oh, no, there's nothing on here, that guy who just watched that search warrant take place is out of there. Guaranteed. He's going to say, see ya, and he's going to be somewhere else, not able to be found. So it's important to do that there, to, to check the machines, to do a triage, an on-scene triage. So we wrote the paper. We made the model. It's been very successful for the Indiana ICAC. In fact, other states have taken on this model and are doing this as well. This won the International Association of Chiefs of Police Award for Excellence in Investigations. So it's a very good paper. And it's on our, the Purdue Cyber Forensics website. So if you're interested in reading it, you should check it out. But since then, it was written, obviously, like up there, it's, you can see, 2006. It's been a few years. Technology's changed a little bit. Investigations have changed a little bit. And so the Assistant U.S. Attorney of the Southern District of Indiana has asked me, at least five times, if not more, probably more, I've lost count, but to, to update the paper. And so he's basically backing us, please update this paper, update this paper. So that's how great our program is, <laughs> how great our education is.
there frequently are, we're, we're being asked to write publications, to do specific white papers, to do different projects. So it, it's, pretty, it's pretty neat to be a part of this field. I'm going to give a case. Um, that's my lieutenant, Lieutenant Chuck Cohen. Work for him. Um, I just like that picture. That's why I wanted to show it. But <laughs> he wasn't the one who came to me. But a sergeant on our floor at work, I worked down in headquarters, he was looking at a machine. He was looking into it, looking at the internet history. He ran a program, got the full internet history of this Target's machine. He saw something that didn't make sense. This, this specific day, this specific time when the user had no other activity, there was a constant log of foreign erotic and sex websites. They were all coming from, I think, Hungary and Poland. And it just didn't make sense. Why is this on there? He asked the other forensic examiners at the Indiana State Police. They had never seen it. They had no idea. So of course, he calls me. When we clicked on, you know, have you guys ever seen a little question mark next to something, don't know what it is, and it tries to tell you what this is? Well, that's what we did. We clicked on that. What, what are these sites? Why are these sites showing up? And you can see it says that these records are maintained by Microsoft and not necessarily related to the browsing history or habits of the user. So if it's on there, why is the internet Explorer looking at foreign sex and erotic websites, but not maintained by the user. Very strange. We've never seen it. Eric and myself, we have no idea. We've never seen it. So we are going to, we have not done this yet because this is very recent, but we're going to create a virtual machine, install the operating system, install the version of Internet Explorer that the target was using, and see if we can find the same files, see if it happens again. Who knows? We don't know yet. Hopefully, we'll have an answer soon, and then we can come back and tell you guys about what we found there. But it's just, it's pretty cool that, you know, this officer who's trained in this, he's never seen something, and so who does he call? Not Ghostbusters, he calls us. <laughs> so, with that, thank you. That's our presentation. Mm -hmm.